Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. So what kind of king do you want? That is the question today. What kind of king do you want? A fitting question for Christ the King Sunday. Uh, You may know that Christ the King, as an official holiday in the church calendar, is very, very new. I mean, within the long scheme of things. Very new. The 1920s, it was added into the church calendar after World War I. And it was meant to send a very deliberate message, which is this. The world may be torn apart by maniacal men, by catastrophe, by wars, by slaughter, by death, but no matter how much carnage and chaos caused within the fallen domain, Jesus is and will always be definitively Lord. That will never change. He is the one monarch who will never abdicate his role. So tonight I want to think about these themes with you based on the two lessons that were just read, one from Jeremiah and one from the Gospel according to Luke, in which we see a very stark, rigid contrast between two different types of shepherds, two different types of authorities. One authority that hurts and one authority that helps. And I want to speak about those divergent authorities tonight because so much of our lives... uh, is just wasted on adhering to, bowing to, giving loyalty to the wrong monarchs. We do it all the time. And it would be great if when we leave, leave the service tonight, we do that a little less. So I want to speak about the authorities that hurt and the authorities that help. So first, we have to deal with the negative, the authorities that hurt. This is from Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah was a real person, lived in a real time, uh, reported about real things. And Jeremiah was a young 20-something man who found a voice and a voice that was so strong it would like make the hills crumble. I mean, he was a very courageous, bold soul who was uh, endowed by God with a, with a prophetic calling. And he would take on anybody who he believed was damaging the nation. And he would often take on the clergy when they didn't like that, but it's what he did. Our passage begins with this stark quote, woe, that's an ancient word that means great sorrow or distress, woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. It's interesting. Woe to the shepherds. Now, shepherds is an ancient way of talking about people in authority who rule over a flock of humans, right? Uh, It could be a reference to priests, could be a reference to kings. In this uh, case, it's about priests. And these uh, shepherds have forgotten uh, who really does, in the end, own the sheep, because it isn't them. That's why the passage says, the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. These are my people. You have temporary oversight, and you're not doing your jobs. And so God is about to say, you're fired. Um, That is happening. And his chief charge against these shepherds is that they have scattered the sheep. That's the one thing a shepherd isn't supposed to do. You have to keep the flock together. Well, these people are doing the very opposite work of a shepherd. They are scattering the sheep. Now, what does this mean? Well, he's very likely referring uh, to a particularized event within history, a great national disaster and dishonor within Judah's history, and we call it the exile. 
If you know your Old Testament history, you will know this bit. If you don't, I'm going to tell you what it is. In 586 BC, Babylon, a great, growing, threatening, militaristic empire, ransacks Judah. They want the land, and they want the cream of the crop within that land. So they take the land, and they take all the brilliant people and bring them back to Babylon for reprogramming. And then eventually they let them come home. But all of them, many, many of these leaders are brought to Babylon. And this act tears apart families and tribes and the whole nation. And in truth, they never fully recover from the exile. Well, God in this passage is blaming the shepherds or the priests for that scattering, for that exile. Why would he blame clergy for people ending up in Babylon? Here's why. Under the Sinai covenant, under the law, uh, there is uh, a threat. And the threat is this. If you obey the Torah, if you obey the commandments of the Lord, if you stay righteous, you will have a place in land flowing with milk and honey. You will belong here in the promised land and you'll stay. Everything will be fine. If you disobey continuously, if you commit national apostasy, the land will expel you and you'll be scattered throughout the Middle Eastern world. You'll be scattered due to an exile. And he blames the priests because the priests were tasked to exemplify, teach, and lead people in the Torah. If there were people that were supposed to embody this tradition, it, were, it was the people that were set aside and anointed for that particular task. And those are the people, those representatives, who have completely bailed on their responsibilities. And God is saying, it's your fault. You misled the flock. You scattered all these people. You were supposed to embody certain truths. You've completely uh, disowned that portion of your responsibility. And because of you, the sheep are scattered. This is why, by the way, the Bible is so hard on leaders. Because leaders affect a multitude of people. And often in damaging ways. And so, God is taking these leaders, these priests, to task. Now, you and I in this room, all of us have, in one way or another maybe in church, maybe outside of church, have suffered from bad authorities. We all bear the emotional, psychological, spiritual scars, sometimes physical scars of bad authorities. Whether that is a massive, massive authorities like the media that can twist our minds or social media, which can cause us to hate our bodies, or politicians who lie in order to get elected, or clergy who abuse and manipulate their office, or mentors who misguide us, or parents who neglect us, or relatives that secretly abuse us and then tell us to shut up about it, all of those authorities cause damaging effects that we still bear to this day. And so Jeremiah is saying that these authorities have hurt people, and in some cases hurt them irreparably. But he doesn't end there. He doesn't conclude his comments in darkness and nihilism. Notice, he says there will be a great imperial interventionist, a branch. In Hebrew, Netzer. It's the word from which the town of Nazareth comes from. Branch town. He will create a new branch in the house of David. And this branch, uh, this new authority, will re replace the old authorities. And this new authority will have a particular effect that is based on his name. And it's really interesting, his name. Not the Lord is righteousness, but the Lord is, did you catch it? Our righteousness. That somehow this Lord who will step into the picture 
will be so effective that he will not only represent this quality of holiness, he will make holiness contagious, and everybody else will share in it. The very thing that caused the people of God to be pushed out of the land, the sheep to go astray, was the lack of holiness, the lack of righteousness under the law, and now the Lord himself, the branch man, the Lord himself will effect that very thing for people, therefore um, bringing a surplus to what was only before a deficit. And so Jeremiah is criticizing these hurtful leaders and saying the Lord will step in and be the leader that helps. And then fast forward 700 years until we get to Luke's gospel. Now Luke has this breathtaking and tortured gospel lesson uh, regarding the passion of the Christ. Now, uh, you, uh, you may think it's odd. Why is it now in, in, on Christ the King Sunday that we're reading a Good Friday lesson? Uh, there's a reason. It's because this is the locus of true authority. This is what kingship and imperial might looks like. So here we see Jesus twisting on the cross, the true shepherd being put to death by the false shepherds, right? being executed by them, a, a, a compilation of kings and clergy that conspire uh, to commit deicide. And he's nailed to this wooden throne with a crown of thorns wrapped around his scalp. And notice what everyone in the crowd is doing. They are mocking his lack of power. They're mocking his lack of kingly power. The religious rulers say he saved others. Why can't he save himself if he is the Christ or the king of God, his chosen one? The army turns on him offers him sour wine as a mocking gesture, and they say, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. The government turns on him and falsely charges him with a mocking epitaph. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. In other words, if you want to pretend that you are a king in Caesar's world, this is what we do to you to shut you up. And lastly, even the criminal element, people that share crosses, turn on him at least one of them, and says, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. They're all saying, if you really are who you always claim to be, how about a little power demonstration? How about you prove it? And how about you affect us while you prove it? Well, what's fascinating, of course, is Jesus doesn't blast his adversaries. He doesn't warn them. He doesn't condemn them. He doesn't even defend himself. What does he do? What does true authority do? What does true power do? Spends all his breath talking to a crucified con man right next to him, assuring him that heaven wouldn't be heaven without him and that there's a place for him too. That is power. That's what power looks like. Jesus on the wooden throne of the cross shows us true kingship and true authority. He accepts sacrifice, suffering, and pain in order to help us with the exact sort of help that we needed, help that pardons that is, reaches into the gory basements of our sin and makes us clean. Help that loves sacrificially, this world would say even wastefully, helps to make us righteous. You know, we Christians are an odd bunch for a variety of reasons, but chiefly, uh, we are odd because we meet to worship a king who is robed in blood, a king who is rejected, defied, spurned, who suffocated to death on a cross. That's what we're here to do to honor that man who died and rose again. And I think that's a very difficult lesson for us to learn because 
we are attracted to the exact opposite of that almost all the time. At least I am. Uh, I'm not attracted to suffering and death. I want to completely ignore both of them in my own life and in yours. Right? Uh, I, I very much am attracted to the opposite of that. I, I'm fascinated by power, by upward mobility, by the promise of strength and security. I think, by the way, friends, it's very easy for Christians to fall in love with the idea of coercive power that someone, some great leader can instantiate the kingdom of God, or at least a few elements of the kingdom of God, with coercive tools of the world. There was an economist and a sometimes theologian named Gary North who writes this, in winning a nation to the gospel, the sword as well as the pen must be used. By contrast, here's what Jesus says. <laughs> Put down your sword. He who lives by the sword shall die by the sword. I didn't make it up. It's like in the Bible. The theology that was parroted by the previous source that I had mentioned, the economist, um, does not jive with the New Testament, no matter how contrived and twisted your exegesis is. Because Jesus said, other places, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus said, the rulers of the Gentiles lord their authority over them, but it is not so with you. The greatest among you is the one who serves. And Jesus said, when someone strikes you on the one cheek, turn to him the other also. And Paul said, we do not war against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And Paul said, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. Jesus said in Gethsemane, I could have called down 10,000 angels to stop this moment, and I didn't want to. It had to happen. Friends, when we want to talk about Christian influence, we need to be very, very careful. We are salt and light in the world, not through coercion and power games, and not through putting all our trust in dubious politicians. We are salt and light through sacrificial love and service, not through coercion. Now, some might have pushed back and say, well, doesn't the same Jesus who died and rose again come back in the book of Revelation to, to create justice and do battle? Absolutely. But just two things. That's in the book of Revelation. So it's at the end, not right now, at uh, the end of the world. And one more thing, it is Jesus as the one who is enacting the judgment, not us. He does not now, nor does he ever, commission us to be his coercive emissaries. Not interested in that game. So friends, beware, if you would, beware the Barabbas impulse. You may know that at Jesus' trial, Pontius Pilate, in a way to help people celebrate the Passover, decided to set someone free. They could choose Jesus, or they could choose Barabbas. Barabbas was a powerful, dominant, violent leader. And the crowds offered their opinion, an overwhelming opinion, for Barabbas. They shouted for his liberation and Jesus' death. Because I guess no one wanted the so-called loser king. They wanted the one who was evidently the winner. But friends, um, Jesus redefines kingship and authority, and we are to follow that cruciform example. For he teaches us through his example, and we learn it from St. Paul, it is in our weakness that we are strong. It is in our weakness that we are strong, not in our power games. Jesus evidences his authority and wins us over, not by force, but through redeeming love. So I began this sermon by asking you a rhetorical question, which is what kind of king do you want? Now, some people will say, well, look, it's very interesting you're talking about kings and authorities, but I don't want a king at all. No authorities for me, right? Well, 
The thing that really stinks about life, at least from a sinful perspective, is not having a king is really not an option. Um, Dylan sang it, did he not? You're going to serve someone. I'm going to serve somebody. Well, uh, I, I meet people, for example, who say, look, I am absolutely not getting married. I've seen enough marriages like go down the toilet. I'm not interested. I want to be free to pursue whomever and whatever I want, whatever impulse possesses me at the moment. They think that's living in freedom without kings. Oh, no, you just created a multiplicity of kings. Now you have all sorts of little authorities in your life, like lust and gluttony and power and manipulation. They're just, they're little deities. They just look a little different, right? Um, but friends, the thing is, not having a king isn't an option, and so there are a lot of kings and a lot of authorities and a lot of dictators and a lot of competing drives that wish to have dominion over you, that wish to capture your loyalty, your time, and your energy. And here's the difficult thing that we learn on Christ the King Sunday. There is only one authority who consistently helps and never harms and it is the one whom we call the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is no other. Everyone else will do you wrong eventually. And everyone else in whom you place messianic hopes will lead you down a path that you do not want to venture. Yeah. So I'm going to now close this sermon with a quotation from Matthew Perry, who played Chandler on the show Friends. And I'm not kidding. Uh, you may know that Chandler Bing... Uh, that is Matthew Perry, the actor, uh, wrote a memoir called Friends, Lovers, and the Big Terrible Thing, which is a reference to his own very powerful addiction to a variety of substances. And he wrote something so breathtaking that I just had to share it with you. It's, it's where he learned the origin of true help. So I'm going to read this to you. It's an extended quotation that I'm done. So Matthew Perry writes, I hated myself. I didn't think I could get any lower than my previous bottom, but I had managed to do it. The cunning, baffling, powerful nature of addiction had gotten me one more time. The last time I prayed, it was when Friends initially aired, and I asked God for a Faustian bargain. Namely, I wanted success. Now, I frantically began to pray with the desperation of a drowning man. Help! God, please help me. I whispered, Show me that you're here. Please help me. Please help me. Well, then as I prayed, I saw something, and it was real. I saw a small golden light. As I kneeled, the light slowly began to get bigger and bigger until it was so big that it encompassed the entire room. It was like I was standing on the sun. What was happening? And why was I starting to feel better? And why was I not terrified? The light engendered a feeling more perfect than the most perfect quantity of drugs I had ever taken. Feeling euphoric now, I did get scared and tried to shake it off for a moment, but there was no shaking this off because it was bigger than me. My only choice was to surrender to it. The euphoria had begun at the top of my head and slowly seeped down throughout my entire body. I sat there for five, six, seven minutes filled with it. It felt like I was made of warm honey, and for the first time in my life, I was in the presence of love and acceptance and filled with an overwhelming feeling that everything was going to be okay. I knew that my prayer had been answered. I really was in the presence of God. After about seven minutes, the light began to dim and the euphoria died down. God had done his work, and now he was off helping someone else. 
I started to cry. I mean, really, really cried. That shoulder-shaking kind of uncontrollable weeping. I wasn't crying because I was sad. I was crying because for the first time in my life, I felt okay. I felt safe, taken care of. Decades of struggling with God and wrestling with life and sadness all washed away, like a river of pain gone into oblivion. I had been in the presence of God, and I was certain of it, and this time I prayed for the right thing, help. We all need help. No one in this room is that strong, you know. We might pretend, but it's not true. We all need help. Help to be delivered from our fanged demigods who rule over us and cause us to hurt. Help to get over ourselves and our egos. Help to forsake the habits that are killing us. Help to really know that we are treasured and forgiven. Always were, always are. Well, that is what Christ the King is all about. He is the one who showed up, who got low, and who helped. He gave up everything that we regard as kingly and powerful to help. And because of our king, our good king, we've all got somewhere to turn tonight. Amen. Oh,